You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. When you post hunting photos on Instagram, they get censored. When you post on Go Wild, you get virtual fist bumps from fellow hunters. When you buy gear on Amazon, you gas up a billionaire spaceship. When you buy gear on Go Wild, we donate to a camp that teaches kids to hunt, fish, and shoot. See the difference? Go Wild is a free social community built by hunters for hunters. Join today at DownloadGoWild.com, and I'll give you 10 bucks just for setting up your account. And you'll keep unlocking Go Wild rewards as you share content, because guess what? We like hunting pictures. Join at DownloadGoWild.com or in the App Store. On today's episode, I'm discussing my recent trip to Iowa. This year, I'd gone down there to do a late-season muzzleloader hunt, as it's still a somewhat easy tag to draw given that it's Iowa, but it gave me more time than one of the shotgun seasons and with less hunting pressure. So I'll discuss the initial strategies that I had going into it, what changed, what things I learned or wasn't expecting once I got there, where I located bigger bucks, hunt strategies that I then employed, and things I would do the same or differently if doing it again in the future. And quick note about Spartan Forge before we started, which is something I used a ton of during the actual hunt. Spartan Forge is an application which covers mapping, including public land boundaries, multiple sources of imagery, a journaling feature, information about the states you're looking into, list of national food sources that might be worth looking at at your particular area. In addition, the app provides the only deer movement prediction based on machine learning using collared deer GPS study data as a primary input. Instead of just saying the movement will be good or bad, it tells you the type of movement to be expected, be it core movement, transitionary movement, or full range daylight activity for the general deer. And of course, the weather prediction I obviously used a ton of during this trip because of the big temperature swings that we would get, as well as the wind direction that I can look at on an hour by hour basis in the upcoming forecast. You can use the code DIY for a discount on a Spartan Forge membership. So to kick off this discussion, I want to talk first about the decision to go with this hunt versus a different hunt. You know, everybody who talks about going to Iowa, they always talk about hunting there during the rut. They talk about putting in their points, going in and getting three, four, maybe five years worth of points before they finally draw. And, you know, going in to try and have basically a world-class hunt, whether it's public land or outfitter or whatever, compared to some of the other states that they might have access to. And my thinking was a couple of years ago, if I'm going to do it, I can save money on points and be able to gather experience more quickly and go there every year or every other year if I decide to get a gun tag as opposed to an archery tag. Now, within Iowa, like many states in the Midwest, most of the hunting pressure is during the gun seasons. It's the same in Wisconsin. It's the same in Minnesota. There's several, several times more people hit the woods during those short gun hunting seasons. But... What I decided to do last year was do the first shotgun and quick recap. It didn't go super well. was expecting there to be more public land pressure. There really wasn't a whole ton. 
and the private land pressure was somewhat unpredictable. So from that aspect, I felt like I didn't really have enough input or control into what was going on. And it was really tough to predict on like a four day hunt, what to expect and where to set up. Now, if you maybe had somebody else who was with you and you, you guys did pushes to one another, you knew where deer were located, that might be a good opportunity to, to actually get something good. But what I was thinking this year, instead of repeating the first shotgun is, Hey, muzzle loader is three weeks long. It's late in the year. So you might be able to get a bed to food pattern. There should be snow on the ground. So that makes scouting a little bit easier and there should be less hunting pressure than either the first two shotgun seasons. What I've come to learn is that amongst the Iowa residents, it seems like the second shotgun is more popular, especially in terms of kicking deer around, doing deer drives, etc., than the first shotgun season is, which would have been helpful information to know last year. But regardless, when I was down there for muzzleloader, there definitely was not as much hunting pressure as there was during the shotgun seasons. I mean, that much was very clear on most any public piece that I went and visited. Some pieces had a little bit of hunting pressure. Some pieces were totally untouched. And that was part of what was going into the, the strategy here. Now, the biggest challenge was one of the assumptions that I, I made on the front end, you know, about having snow. Well, there was no snow to kick off this season. So my strategy with the amount of time that I had off around late December was, hey, before Christmas, I can go out there, do a whole bunch of scouting, set some cameras. And then after Christmas and New Year, be in a good position to be able to gather some of that info uh, from either the tracks that I saw or the trail camera pictures and be able to make a plan for <clears throat> the last weekend or two of the actual muzzleloader hunt. But without there being snow on the ground the first weekend, that made scouting somewhat difficult because really the only sign that was sort of quote unquote locked into the ground was sign that was, you know, we'll say weeks old because the ground is hard enough and, and cold enough to be able to hold in those older tracks from when the ground was softer or wet, but nothing that's super, super recent really gets shown on the, on the dirt with the exception of if a deer happened to move during the midday, you would sometimes get that really top surface layer of mud start to soften up and get slippery again. So if you'd see tracks that were, let's say really, really shallow, but they also look like they might be sliding a little bit then that was an indicator that that deer was probably moving during the warmer part of the day, you know, midday, early afternoon. But apart from that, the only way to really know where deer were now was to try and jump them. Either that, of course, from the bedding perspective or find out where they're feeding on right now and then be able to use the trail camera information from, say, nocturnal pictures on the food sources and then be able to try and back calculate to where those deer might be bedding based on that information. So I was trying to do a little bit of both. I walked a whole bunch of miles and I picked three different public pieces that first week to walk through and I don't really keep track. I must've put on 40, 50 miles walking around in those Hills, just trying to see what places made the most sense. I was looking for fields that were really hard to access from the bottoms, you know, like private ag fields that are up on top and you can't really see them from the roads driving around and they're tougher to access from the bottoms. The only way you can get up there and actually check them was to walk up the hills and, you know, go three quarters of a mile, mile, whatever it might be to see if deer were hitting them. And without snow, I mean, everything looked like it had sign, right? There's, there's trails pounded into the dirt everywhere, especially in the hill country. You get these really obvious looking trails where the leaves are kicked away. And the hardest thing was just telling, okay, is this currently being used or was this, you know, back in 
earlier December before the shotgun seasons. And I put out cameras in a lot of those areas just to try and monitor and get that little piece of information. Now the food sources themselves on the private land, it seemed like across the board, pretty much everything was harvested. There was not really anybody that I found who was, who had left crops up in terms of standing beans or standing corn. There were a couple of fields that looked like they had winter wheat in them, but the ones that I did find didn't seem like they were getting hit really that hard. Though there were a couple that I, I put a couple of cameras on again, just to sort of confirm there. And so really for that first, you know, segment of time that I had time off for, I didn't set up a hunt at all. If you remember the, the second shotgun season ends and then the very next day muzzleloader season starts. So I was basically out there on the tail end of people doing deer drives and thinking, okay, this is just an extension of these, of the pressure that these deer have already been subjected to. So I'm not too worried about putting on miles and not too worried about where my scent's going. I just need to get information and you know, maybe that's a good or a bad thing, but my thought process is I'd rather have the ability to hunt in the last half of that season and know that I can hunt with confidence rather than just trying to set up blind on certain spots and just kind of have a hope and a prayer that it might be a good spot based on looking at the map. So with all that said, the first few days, I didn't really get much great information, but I put out a lot of feelers, right? I had a lot of potential spots. And what I was also able to learn is that it seemed like most of the hottest food sources, at least what you would think of in terms of good late season food was actually on the public. You know, a lot of the game areas in Iowa seem to have either some kind of agreement with whoever's farming it, where they leave up a certain amount of corn in some of these fields and it's, you know, there to feed the wildlife. And it seemed like a lot of these places too, where that would happen would be in spots that were really easy access, either right next to a parking lot, right next to a road, or maybe a hunter access trail would lead back three quarters of a mile to get to that field. And that would have standing corn in it. And that's obviously like a, a concern because of the hunting pressure aspect. And, you know, similar to how the deer sign was tough to tell if it was old or fresh. I mean, there's hunter sign everywhere too, from boot tracks on the access trails and whatnot. But again, it's tough to tell where these guys, are these guys actively muzzleloader hunting or were they just out here during second shotgun? My assumption was that most of it was second shotgun and a lot of that scouting that I did, I was the only guy in any of those parking lots. So that made me feel like, okay, maybe there's a chance that this place isn't getting much pressure. And I did that across, like I said, three different public pieces to try and gather as much information, but also put out as much, as many feelers as possible. So after that kind of phase one, then I come back in to check some of those cameras and, and get some of that updated information. And we had finally started to get some snow, like just a dusting, but enough to be able to tell, okay, fresh tracks over the last day. So that was very helpful. And what I learned is that some of the trail cameras I put out were in areas that even though they had sign and maybe they had potential for late season movement, the deer weren't using them right now. So I had cameras in areas that just had no deer at all. I had other cameras where they were in the right areas, but maybe they were off just a little bit. Like if I shifted the camera 10 yards, it would pick up better information. And they had other cameras where they actually did pick up deer. And, and that first camera set of camera poles across those, those places I had, I think it was, it was either three or four bucks that I would have, you know, been more than happy to shoot. Um, not like giant Iowa, you know, standard quality, but really respectable deer. They were all at night and I'm talking like late night, you know, 10 PM, midnight, 1 AM. 
and most of those pictures were at some of those food sources. Okay. So now I, I have an idea and I can start to re-expand that search based on where some of those deer were showing up versus which areas were totally dead. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, that next phase sort of removing cameras from the areas where they were dead, repositioning them to better areas and utilizing the snow to be able to help refine some of those locations. So after that second adjustment of the cameras, I felt much more confident in the areas that they were located. What I learned too, was that one of the pieces of public that I had scouted, I mean, it was just, it was dead. There was a lot of rut sign in it. There was a lot of just general deer sign, but they weren't in there right now. Um, I don't know if there was someplace nearby that was easy enough for them to relocate to based on food. Um, you know, all they really have to do is go over one Ridge if there's a hot food source on the other side, and that would preclude them from ever wanting to go into this particular piece of public. So I pulled everything out of there and that, that took pretty much a whole day. Uh, but I felt good about crossing it off the map because it meant I could refine my options. And one of the pieces was a larger track where it didn't have food on the public. It had good bedding on the on the public. And the food was actually a long ways away from the public that they were feeding on. So I'm thinking, man, this is a really good scenario here because I can set up basically close to the bedding. These deer got to get up early and move if they want to get to that food, which is a long way off. Uh, so I had pretty high hopes about that one. And some of the cameras in the initial poll were showing lots of does, a couple of younger bucks. And in fact, that place seemed to be so full of does and they give you an extra doe tag with your uh, muzzleloader tag that on the last day of that second phase, I just decided to go ahead and sit that uh, because I hadn't really confirmed. I hadn't really seen any monster tracks in there. I just sat there, you know, just in case I'd have a doe come by. I ended up seeing one deer, uh, but it just was, my muzzleloader is not really like a long range muzzleloader. It's like 50, 75 yard gun if I have a good rest. And so I just didn't really feel comfortable with the shot. It was last light. I wouldn't have had great footage of it. Uh, and so I, I didn't take any shots, but I definitely kept that place in mind, just kind of hoping that I'd be able to locate a big one in there because it would be much more killable than some of these other spots. The other spots, it, it was tough because in a lot of these areas is, it was like, you could tell and the cameras were confirming that some of these bigger deer were hitting food that was on public. And there's a lot of good bedding opportunities on the public as well that they could have been traveling from. But I'm telling you, I walked those places. I went and scouted in areas where I should be able to pick up the sign if they were bedding on those places. And there just was not the confirmation that those big deer were using the bedding that was on the public. In contrast, you could tell that they were almost certainly bedding on the private in a lot of these cases. Uh, and so as by the time I'm figuring all this information out, I mean, I'm you know two weeks into the hunt a week and a half, two weeks into the hunt at this point. And I've used a lot of my PTO just on scouting, uh, covering boot miles, placing cameras, checking cameras, removing them, trying to locate bigger deer. And so there's, there's, I guess, two ways of, of going about this, right? One is I don't use all of that scouting time and I just basically hunt with, uh, the gun with me. I go in and scout a place and just keep walking until it looks good. If I see something looks good, I set up, but I don't really have any intel prior to that. And then the other strategy is, and then if I do that, I'm able to hunt more, more sits. But the flip side is I just try and spend time gathering intel and I don't feel confident enough to actually do a sit until I have enough intel to say this is worthwhile. So that was kind of the strategy that I employed. Maybe it's 
better, maybe it's worse. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But the information that I had said, you got two choices here. You can try and hunt some of these places that are better opportunity at getting a shot at a deer during daylight, but there's nothing really to that point that I found confirming that there was a really nice buck in there. On the flip side, I had multiple pictures of very nice bucks on areas of public where they were feeding and me back calculating where they'd be bedding, especially based on the wind positions or the wind directions that were common that time of year, which mostly like West, Northwest, etc. They were betting on private, but it was a good likelihood they weren't betting too far away on private. Meaning they had good betting opportunities, let's say 200 yards off the public. And they're likely just waiting until they feel it's safe and then dropping down to get to some of this food. And that was a couple of the scenarios I found were like that. Where it was like, man, like you definitely got a chance here if they decide to move early, but it's it's really a roll of the dice. So those are like my two options that I was kind of weighing. Uh, if I would have had, let's say, another week of time off, then I probably would have said, okay, like none of these are really great options and added three more pieces of public to the list and just doubled my efforts. And if you look at this as a, a year over year type of a thing, okay, year one, I hunt three pieces. Year two, I, I do three different ones. And maybe out of those three different ones, there's one good one. And then the year after that, I, I stick with that one good one. And then I add two more to the list before you know it. Like if you do it three, four, five years, you've scouted and hunted every piece of public on the zone and you kind of know what's good or what's not. So that that's one, I guess, piece of information and thought process that is kind of weighing on whether or not I continue to do this type of hunt in the future. If you look at it as a really long-term strategy, and this is going to take a lot of work because even the guys in Iowa will tell you, at least the ones I know, that the late muzzleloader hunt on public is not an easy hunt. You listen to a lot of content around late season hunting, uh, even from guys who are located in Iowa, almost all of it is based on a really simple strategy, right? You just hold off and monitor unpressured good food sources. And then once you have confirmation that deer are using it, you go in for the kill makes it seem super easy. And in that kind of scenario where you can control everything, it would be much easier. So obviously we don't have that capability on public. Uh, I'd thought about asking permission on some of the private pieces, but just never had gotten around to it. Maybe that's something that in the future I would have done as well is once I located some of these bucks, you know, go up around and, and try and ask permission on those pieces surrounding it. Um, you know, in hindsight, it sounds like it would have been a really smart move in real time. As I was going through some of those scenarios, like there's just so many other options that you're weighing amongst your mind that it just wasn't something that was kind of in the forefront of what I was doing. So after sort of that second phase of scouting was done, I went back home, you know, I was out of PTO basically at this point, PTO, my work resets January 1st. So all of the, you know, PTO I had saved up was kind of used up during late December. And now I just basically have weekends to, you know, over that early January period. And you know, fast forward to the, the very end of the hunt, I drive down there and I got like one more set of camera poles and one more check of uh, tracks and scouting to make my decision of where I'm going to set up. And I will tell you th the importance of snow on some of these hunts is just so critical in terms of being able to find fresh sign. The amount of information you can get from tracks that have been on the snow for four days compared to the amount of information you can get from tracks that are on the snow for one day compared to the amount of information you get on bare ground that time of year is just 
it's exponential. Going back into some of those same areas that had you know the high numbers of does, it was like you go in there after one day and you see three heavily used trails. You go back there after the snow's been on the ground for four or five days, that's like doubled. And it just goes to show you like, okay, some days these deer are taking certain trails. Sometimes they're taking certain other trails across this like expanse throughout this bigger bedding area. I mean, we're talking like maybe, you know, a hundred acres of land that's all suitable bedding this time of year and, and pretty much unpressured. I don't think there's anybody else that was going back there, but it wasn't like not a guarantee that you're going to be set up on the right trail, but with a muzzleloader, maybe you could get close enough to like two or three of them that you'd be able to get a shot opportunity. But in terms of setting up on a, a bigger deer, like you would just kind of look for that trail that had the big track and hope that he was going to be continuing to use that same trail. But it was certainly an eye opener. And you go in there after four or five days and you're like, wow, there really is a lot of deer in here, uh, in this particular area. So I went through that last spot check in that area and, you know, I, I pulled my cameras all out and basically said, okay, well, I know what this place looks like. I've, I've already crossed one of the other pieces of public off the list. And now I can go check the place that had some of the bigger bucks that I had located. And depending on how that looks, I can decide whether or not I think it's worth going after them or if it's worth just, you know, coming back to here, we'll have a good chance of, of putting some more meat in the freezer. So I pull out of that piece with the cameras that I had, you know, remaining. And I drive over to the piece of public where I had located some of those bigger bucks. And again, now that the snow has been kind of on the ground for more time, I was able to determine that just about all of the parking lots, there was some amount of pressure, right? There's, you can see tire tracks pulling in, turning around, boot tracks really heavily in certain areas. Uh, even some of the areas where I had, you know, cameras back on the food sources to monitor them. I could see that I definitely was not the only person back there. And it was kind of like confirmation in my mind of, okay, this makes sense as to why all of these pictures are so late where I'm getting pictures that, you know, by this point, some of them are, are close to light. You know, we're saying like an hour after dark, hour before light. So it's not like they're all midnight anymore. Uh, and I've been able to certainly find the food sources that are just getting absolutely destroyed, which on this hunt, it was standing corn. That was like, I mean, there's deer definitely milling around in cut corn, but wherever you had standing corn, it was like they were demolishing it. So the only problem was, of course, that a lot of these standing corn fields were easy for people to find, easy for people to access. And where there was various hunting pressure around, it was usually located, seemed to be around those same food sources. So then I look at the map and I'm like, well, I know where these bucks are bedded. I could probably almost pinpoint it. It's on private. They've got about 200 yards to go to get to where I would have potentially a chance at shooting them. There's a, a ton of sign, not just like the buck sign, but also just like a ton of doe sign coming off some of these private bedding areas to get to this food. And so I could potentially set up close to the line and just hope that some of these deer come off because it was cold the last day that, that I went and sat. And so it was like, it was definitely not a guarantee. It was a, a very much roll of the dice but I felt like it was still somewhat of an option. And it was really the only option other than just going in blind and crossing my fingers to a new piece of being able to have an opportunity at one of the, uh, a bigger buck. 
And I was thinking too in my head, you know, if I end up having does in front of me and it's down to last light, I would be more than happy to shoot one of those and, you know, put it in the freezer. There's definitely a lot of deer down there. Um, I, I think they even have extra doe tags available that they never sell out because the deer population's high enough. Now, again, decision point. Do I go back to the place that had more deer, better opportunity for daylight movement? Do I set up in this spot knowing that there's some hunter pressure around? Well, at that point I decided I might as well, you know, roll the dice and give it a shot in the area that had the food in the bigger box. Just, you know, just because I don't really have a, a good reason or not other than I felt like I might as well give it a shot. And so I went on the last day that I had available to hunt. I parked well a ways down the road so that I wasn't parking right in front of the place I wanted to access because where some of these deer are bedding, you could definitely tell from just walking the hills and scouting in some of these bedding areas, you can see right down to the roads. You can see right down to the parking lots. So those deer absolutely know if there's somebody driving by, they absolutely know if somebody's parking in a parking lot because they can see so much from some of those hilltop bedding areas. Now I park, I start walking down the road, kind of dip into the woods and start working up one of these drainage systems with the wind in my face. Really at that point, it was kind of coming from the leeward direction coming across the, the hilltops on the private and dipping down through the drainage onto the public. So I had a good access wind and it was also shaded to where there wasn't any rising thermals. So at that point, you know, the hills and the sun position were such that I basically had all of the wind sort of in my advantage on that access. And it wasn't a very far access. So I basically walked in with all my bibs and everything on and knew I was going to set up on the ground because it would make a lot of commotion and it was cold. I mean, low single digits. I think the wind chill was about 10 below somewhere in there, five, 10 below. And sign was everywhere. Of course, you know, kind of like I'd mentioned, and you could tell that there was deer dropping off of some of these hills and through this drainage system in, in many different locations. It wasn't like there was just one beaten down trail. It's like there's a heavy trail here and then 40 yards down, there's another heavy trail and then 80 yards is another heavy trail. And so you can kind of look at that and say, okay, this one looks like mostly doe tracks. This one's got a couple of bigger tracks, but I don't know that you can guarantee that say like a buck might take one of those trails down one day and not take a different trail the next day. Um, you know, most of the, the pictures I had were on the food just to kind of get information about what was using that food source. So I used my judgment and just picked kind of the, the best looking spot that had some bigger tracks dropping off. And also gave me the opportunity to see one or two other trails that were also dropping through that area and set up low on a, a bigger tree on the ground level to where I could face up and look up the hill and be able to see all these different trails and be able to hopefully see a deer coming down um, and be able to get a shot. And I guess as it turns out, not too long after I set up, there was another truck that pulled up and parked literally like right on the road in front of this drainage, like basically between the drainage and the food source is where kind of the road ran it again, not an ideal setup by any means, but it was where the bigger bucks were at. So ideal scenario, it would have been, I found bigger bucks in the other area, but that just wasn't the case. So that was obviously not good. Uh, cause you can almost assume at that point in time that some other deer know that that guy is now like hunting the food source regardless there were still does that I saw that were dropping down the hill to get to that food with like an hour of light left. 
And after a while, I could hear blowing down at that food source. And I wasn't sure, like it, it could have totally been from the wind and thermals dropping down into that food. I mean, they, I'm sure they can smell a lot of what's in that drainage. So it's possible they could smell me. It's possible that they you know, knew or could smell that other guy who was back there. Either way, uh, didn't really seem to matter too much. But again, it's another one of those like alerting things to if a buck was using that area. Now he knows that there's a truck down there. He can hear deer blowing down in the field. Like it's just not a good scenario. Um, and I ended up seeing two of those does come sort of back up the field direction uh, and, and back up the hill toward bedding again. Uh, so it must have been some of the deer that had been spooked while they were down at that food. Uh, so, you know, it got closer to light got closer to dark had there been more time had it still been earlier this season that point in time i probably wouldn't have sat but given that it was the last day i had available to hunt i was like might as well so that sort of closed out the the hunt for me it didn't end successfully but i learned a ton as usual which is always important on a trip like this and you know the thing that i have to think about now is is this something that i want to do again next year or do i want to alter my plans and from the information I gathered on my hunt and information I've gathered from people who live in Iowa, who hunt in Iowa, who I talked to ask advice of, and also people that I have talked to who have also done this hunt, like shout out to uh, Jacob Myers from the Southern Outdoorsman podcast who shot a great buck on this late season Iowa muzzleloader hunt. Definitely go you know, check that out. I believe there is absolutely and and probably even multiple opportunities for this in the zone i was hunting absolutely cases and scenarios where you can find that ideal scenario in which you have a really good buck bedded on public in a location where you can set up and kill him and it's just about finding that particular opportunity and so from that standpoint there's maybe some advantage to doing this year after year and getting that repeated information and intel. Now, the advantage is you spend less money on tags on average because you don't have to build up as many points, which points cost money. The disadvantage is the hunt experience and hunt quality, and I would say the ease of the hunt, is not nearly as what you could expect to have on an archery hunt. You got to put in a lot more work, um, and, and perhaps not expect to have success. You know, I would imagine if you draw an archery tag, if you put in your time in good areas and you have a good basic understanding of how to hunt the rut, you're probably going to have a good opportunity or two. And I don't think that's necessarily guaranteed uh, during some of the, the later muzzleloader seasons, just because things have changed a lot and trying to set up when it's cold and quiet and there's no leaf cover and you got snow on the ground is also a little bit more challenging. So for me personally, the other thing that I have kind of pulling away at me from, from doing this again would be the fact that I might have other unfilled tags come late season. Might be a North Dakota tag, might be a Wisconsin tag, might be a Minnesota tag. And they all have good late season hunting as well, or at least they can. I would say maybe Minnesota's the worst example out of that because the season is it does not go as long ends December 31st and you have gun pressure, especially in, in some parts of the state gun pressure throughout most of the month of October and then muzzleloader going through mid December. And then you basically got two weeks of late bow 
and in some places you got CWD hunts mixed in there as well. So Minnesota is a harder one, but again, it might still have an unfilled tag. Wisconsin, in some counties, it goes through the end of January. Some counties, it goes through early January. It just depends. North Dakota goes through the end of December, but like I can, I can tell you from, I guess, having scouted out there before and knowing how cold it can get up there and just kind of having spent time in the area, that that can be a really good opportunity for a late season hunt if you're willing to withstand the elements. I mean, like whatever the worst case scenario is in Iowa for late season, North Dakota could be 20 degrees worse. Uh, I remember end of December looking at the forecast in North Dakota, and it was a high of negative 14 actual temperature with like a 15-mile-an-hour wind. And like that, That's just brutal. Uh, no matter how good your clothes are, no matter how good your uh, hand warming and, and boot warming systems are, if you're not sitting in a heated blind, that's a really tough set of conditions to be exposed in. But if you found that hot food source, you might have like, you know, a hundred deer filling up in a, a field that has corn remaining in it or something like that. Uh, again, you know, shout out to Alex Comstock from Whitetail DNA. He shot a good late season buck in North Dakota this year. Uh, I'm not sure if the video has been posted on that or not, but I, I think he recorded the hunt. So definitely a lot of good opportunities. And plus, I mean, if you guys saw some of my YouTube videos from earlier in the year and some of the deer that I passed on, and me mentioning, you know, some of the bucks that I was after, that was also kind of weighing on my, my mind as I'm out there. It's like, man, I could be, instead of sitting down here in Iowa or, or coming these miles in Iowa, I could be spending this time out in that same piece of public and learning what those bucks are doing during the late season, which is a piece of information I don't have. And so it was like, I'm, you know, kind of pulling myself in multiple different directions here. I felt obligated to do the Iowa hunt because it was an expensive tag, but in reality, if I look at kind of the global context of all the, the tags I have in any given year and the hunts that I do, it's almost like I might be better off just sort of continuing to focus on the stuff that I'm able to hunt and bow hunt every single year for late season. And instead of doing the you know so, sort of super late muzzleloader tag or any of the other gun tags in Iowa, maybe that's just a state where I do what everybody else does, just put in the points and just hunt it once every four years, five years for archery, and then continue to, you know, become really effective in the other states that I hunt. So again, I haven't really hundred percent decided for sure. I think if I continue to do late muzzleloader in the future, after two, three, four more years, I'll probably have something figured out. But if I don't do that and just continue to focus on the other states and maybe do, you know, the occasional archery hunt in Iowa, I, I really like that aspect and opportunity as well so if you guys have any questions about the hunt about things that i did or didn't do or maybe you know suggestions for me if you've done something similar in the past uh, definitely open to receiving all of that feedback and you know having discussions so appreciate you guys for listening this long and that'll do it for this week's episode that'll do it for this episode as always make sure to follow the sportsman's nation on facebook instagram and youtube Leave us a review on iTunes, and if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.